Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Forgotten True Crime by Oki Investigations. The true crime podcast where we tell the stories of crimes that happened long ago. If you're a true crime fan, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way, when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Also, check us out on our Facebook page, Okie Investigations, and visit our blog over at truecrime.blog. Parts of the story may contain opinions and speculations and should be taken as such. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I spent the last month getting a lot ready for this year. So far, I have about 30 cases that I'm researching and doing write-ups on. Not all of them would become podcasts. Some of them will just be, you know, uh, small episodes and some become dead ends or are just way too short to be put into a podcast. And some will become, you know, huge, like multi-part episodes. This has been an enormous undertaking. It has been a lot of fun to dig through. The end goal here is to provide you with the best and most accurate content that I can provide. 2021 was a massive year for us, and I want to make 2022 even more significant. But we are in the month of February, the month of love. We decided to start an annual event called Be Mine. This will feature true crime stories of love and loss. Many of these stories do not feature a happily ever after, but rather full of misery forevermore. This is a story of shock and betrayal, fear and love. This story is unique in many ways, but deep down, it's like many others that we've covered over the years. Today, I'm bringing you a story of forbidden love, one forgotten through time and yet seems so familiar. This story first takes place on June 13th, 1929, near Ohio State University. Two college students were just arriving at the New York Central Railroad Rifle Range. This range was a popular spot for shooters in the area. It featured some of the best shooters in the country. These two young men were the first on the range for that day. The shooting field was overgrown. The grass was about knee-high or just a little taller. The boys walked out to place their targets, and one of them noticed something in the distance. It almost looked like someone was sleeping in the tall grass. The boy pointed it out to his friend, and they went to investigate. What they found 
they would never forget. A woman was lying in the field. Her head was beaten and bloody. As they got closer, they knew that she was dead. They quickly left the rifle range and alerted the police to what had happened. One of the first detectives on the scene was Chief of Detectives W.G. Schallenbarger. The detective advised everyone to stay back from the body. He wanted to observe the area before they went in. He could see the tracks of the two boys made with the tall grass being bent over. He followed them to where they placed their targets, and then their tracks heading to the body. You see, when you move through tall grass like that, it parts the grass enough for you to know where you had been. But besides their tracks, there were no others in the area, none that led to or from the body. So this made the detective believe it had been there for just a little while. The grass had time to reposition itself, and those tracks were now gone. He then allowed the other detectives to move in. As the detective checked the body, the other officers were combing through the tall grass, looking for anything that could be evidence. Detective Schellenbarger and the coroner counted multiple blows to the head. They were rounded, so they thought it might be from a hammer. The coroner noted the roundness of each impact and believed it to be a ball-peen hammer, the type that has a rounded head. Her throat and body had several deep slashes as well. The detective searched the woman's personal belongings. He found a set of keys in her pocket, but nothing else to help identify the woman. The search was completed just hours later. Nothing was found on the rifle range. No hammer or knife was left at the scene. The coroner took the mystery woman back to his office, where he would start his investigation on the manner of death. But this woman would not be a mystery woman for long. Two sisters who attended Ohio State University were very worried about their roommate, who had not returned to the dorm from a date. So they decided to go to the police station and tell the authorities about the situation. They described the missing woman to a detective who thought it matched the woman found on the rifle range. The two sisters were named Alice and Beatrice Buston. The detective led them to the morgue to see if they could identify the woman found that morning. When they were shown the body, they positively identified her as Theora K. Hicks, their missing friend. The police questioned the two girls about what they knew of Miss Hicks' movements yesterday. They both stated that she had gone to the hospital to see if she could get a part-time job there to earn some extra money. She was a medical student and was interested in the work. She had also told them that she had a date that night. They were surprised because Miss Hicks never dated anyone. She was very focused on school. The sisters didn't know much about her private life. 
They said she was seen with an older man in a small car several times around campus, but they didn't know the nature of that relationship. They thought he was a faculty member. She had also been seen with another man closer to her age. He might be a student or a young staffer. Besides that, they didn't know much about Miss Hicks. She kept mostly to herself and offered very little to anyone. The only thing they remember her saying was that her family was from Florida, and that was it. The detective then worked on notifying the next of kin. In this case, it was Miss Hicks's parents. The police contacted the school, who gave them the parents' contact information. They then made contact with her parents. Miss Hicks's parents were absolutely devastated to learn of the news of their daughter's death. They had not seen her for quite some time since she had started school, and now they would never see her alive again. They started the long drive to Ohio from Florida when notified of the news. Detective Schellenbarger then decided to follow up on Miss Hicks' movements throughout the day. He had already spoken to her roommates, but they said that she had left to find work at a hospital. So that was the next place that he went. It was found out that the hospital did indeed see Miss Hicks that previous day, and they hired her on the spot. They started to train her on operating the phone switch line, and then she had to go. She told them that she had a date to go on, but provided no information or names about that date. It was very odd that the name of the person that she had a date with was such a mystery. But the thing about small towns is, you know, news travels fast. This is doubly true on a school campus. The news of Miss Hicks's murder spread like a wildfire across the campus. And that's when the police received their first big tip. The police received several tips about Miss Hicks, but several that came in all at once was that she was often in the company of a teacher at the school. Professor James Snook. They had seen her in his car just a day or two ago. This was surprising because James Snook was not just a teacher at the school. He was a local celebrity. He once held the world record for pistol shooting and was a gold medalist in the 1920 Summer Olympic Games for 50-meter team pistol shooting. He taught veterinary medicine at Ohio State University and had done so for some time, making a name for himself as a senior member of the faculty. The detective called the school to see where Professor Snook was. His assistant told him that he believed that he went to the shooting range where he spent most of his time. This is the same shooting range where they found Miss Hicks. 
They immediately went to check, and indeed, they found the professor there, shooting a rifle, and they brought him in for questioning. The detectives wanted to know what the professor knew about Miss Hicks, and they needed to rule him out as a suspect. So, they needed to know his movements for the previous night. The professor told them that he and Miss Hicks were professional friends, nothing else. She was in his car because he was putting together a book, and he needed her help with typing. They had discussed payment for the service. One thing that the detective noted right away was that Professor Snook's hand was bandaged. They asked about the injury, and the professor told them that he had hurt his hand while working on his car. The professor told the police that the night of the murder, he had stayed late in the office. He didn't leave until 7 or 8 p.m. He then drove to the country club to get some shooting glasses, and then he purchased a newspaper on the way home. He then met his wife at home right around 9.30 p.m. Professor Snook believed that the night watchman could confirm with the police that he was indeed in the office and that others from his stops would do the same and verify his movements. Officers would start verifying the professor's statements, but Detective Schellenbarger received an intriguing phone call from the coroner's office before they could. A man had just left his office. He asked to view the body of Theora Hicks. The man was upset about her death and stated that he knew her well. His name was Myron Myers, and he fit the description of the person who was a little closer to her age that Ms. Hicks had been seen with recently. So detectives sent officers to find Mr. Myers. Mr. Myers was a state employee. He actually worked for the State Department of Agriculture and conducted research at Ohio State University. They would start there to find out where he was staying while researching. Detective Schellenbarger went to the professor's office and spoke with his staff. They didn't work as late as the professor did, so they couldn't really tell them one way or the other if the professor had indeed stayed late that day. The detective then checked with the staff about what they did know about the professor's movements today. And that's when they gave up some interesting information. You see, that morning when the professor first came in for the day, he had his staff take care of and clean his car. It wasn't unusual for him to have them to do so, but it was the first thing he had them do that day. Now, the professor's car had been left at the shooting range where they had picked him up, so Detective Schellenbarger then returned to the station to pick up the keys to the car, and then he began getting a warrant to search the professor's vehicle and Mr. Meyer's vehicle. In the meantime, officers located Marion Myers, the state worker. He was at a fraternity house on campus. 
He was arrested on suspicion and was brought into the station for questioning. The entire time he pleaded with the officers that he had nothing to do with the murder, but they told him to cooperate and he had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to worry about. When Mr. Myers arrived at the police station, Detective Schellenbarger immediately interviewed him. When asked about his relationship with Miss Hicks, he said he'd been close friends with her about two years ago, but their friendship had cooled, and he said he was in Columbus Thursday night and had returned to Bono when a fraternity brother called him early today to tell him of Miss Hicks' death. Thinking it might be a joke, he phoned the police to see if it were true. He then said he came back to Columbus. Once they received the warrant to search both suspects' cars, they did so right away, starting with Dr. Snook's car. When they arrived at the shooting range, they were a little disappointed. The vehicle had indeed been cleaned very well. It was evident that the exterior and interior of the car had been detailed precisely. But they still searched. Blood has this way of seeping into areas that no one really thinks to clean. They looked under flooring and in creases, but they really found nothing. Only when they opened the passenger door... One of the detectives noticed what looked like a small drop of blood in the door jam. He carefully collected the sample. The sample would be taken to the police chemist to see what it was exactly. You see, back in 1929, we didn't have DNA evidence, but we could identify blood and type it. If it matched the same type as the victim, it would be just one more piece of evidence of who may have committed the crime. It would take several days for the chemist to have results, but it was their first lead. They also impounded Mr. Meyer's car and conducted a search on it as well. Unlike the professor's car, Mr. Meyer's didn't appear to have been recently cleaned. It had more of a used look to it, but didn't contain anything that seemed like blood. They continued searching both vehicles. In the professor's vehicle, they also found a ball-peen hammer, like the one believed used in the murder. They also found some stained gloves. They too were taken by the chemist to see if they had blood on them. With this possible evidence, Detective Schellenbarger could obtain a warrant to search the professor's house. The detectives in this case were moving as fast as they could. They had held both men on suspicion, but if they didn't charge them with a crime, they had to let them go after 48 hours. Focusing on Professor Snook at the moment... The detectives worked on getting a warrant to search his house. The scope of the search would be for the articles of clothing or items that appear to have blood on them. Once they obtained this warrant, they quickly moved in to search the home. 
Miss Snook was home, and she let the detectives in with little protest. She hoped that the lack of evidence would prove her husband's innocence. She was the main alibi for her husband, and she told officers that he had been with her after 9.30 p.m., and that he never left the house once he got home. Once inside the home, they found a couple of items— One was a piece of dry cleaning that was just picked up from the dry cleaners. It was a jacket of the professor's. It had stains on the sleeve that could have been blood. The slip showed it was dropped off the day after the murder. The other was not discovered until they looked into the home's furnace. Inside was a shirt with stains on it and a woman's vanity case. Miss Snook had no idea why these items were placed in the furnace. Now detectives were starting to lean toward Professor Snook as their primary suspect. They still needed to rule out Marion Myers, but things were looking up for him. Mr. Myers had told them all along that he didn't learn of Miss Hicks' death until a friend called him. The police interviewed this friend, and he told them the exact same story. He actually called long distance to speak with Mr. Myers, and that he was shocked to learn of her death. With no evidence against him, detectives decided to take one more shot at cracking him before letting him go. Detectives took Mr. Myers to the morgue where Miss Hicks's body was. They made him look at her and the damage that had been done to her. It was said that he showed little emotion during this. When he didn't break and tell them more information, the detectives decided to let him go. On his way out of the police station, Mr. Meyer said little as he got into the car. The only statement he made was that he was now scared of Professor Snook. Now, with just one suspect, the detectives who had been taking it somewhat easy on Professor Snook now were changing gears and coming at him much harder. They refused to let him rest or sleep. For hours, they would slowly reveal the evidence they found against him. First, they told him what they believed that he killed Miss Hicks and transported her body to the shooting range. They thought that the blood-like stain on his car was from the professor closing the door on her hand when she tried to escape. She had an injury on her hand that looked like it had been in in a door that closed on her. The detectives then showed him the charred articles of clothing that didn't thoroughly burn in his furnace, and the cleaned jacket that looked like it had bloodstains on it. But as they brought each piece of evidence out, it didn't seem to phase the professor in any way. He sat there, unmoving and uninterested in what they had to say. But the next thing that the detectives revealed changed all of that because they had a new witness come forward. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The news of the professor's involvement in what might be a murder was national news. There was a paper in the state of Ohio that didn't have this on the front page for just several weeks. Along with that press came multiple photos of the victim and the professor, just like the ones we've posted over at truecrime.blog. Now, people have come forward saying that they often saw the two together, but one man came forward with information that helped break open this case. A bellman for the local YMCA decided that he needed to tell police what he knew of Miss Hicks and Professor Snook. He told the detectives that Miss Hicks rented an apartment from the YMCA and often came home with Professor Snook at her side. He would often go and stay the night with her, so much so that he thought that they were married. This news was precisely what the detectives were looking for, a current link to the relationship of the professor and his victim. They went down to the local YMCA and they took the keys that Miss Hicks had on her when she died. They wanted to see if the key fit the lock. But when they arrived and placed the key in the lock, it didn't work. So they decided to check up on this story with the manager of the YMCA and see if any part of this story was genuine. The manager told the detectives that Miss Hicks did indeed live at the YMCA and that it was Professor Snook who paid for the apartment every month. The morning the body was found before the news hit that Miss Hicks was dead, the professor had come into the YMCA and gave her the keys to the apartment. He told her that it was no longer needed. He wasn't going to rent that apartment anymore. And then that was that. He gave the set of keys to the manager and then he left. When prosecutor John J. Chester revealed that he knew about the apartment and the nature of the relationship between the two, the professor seemed to break. He lowered his head and seemed ashamed of what he had done to himself and his family. The prosecutor questioned Professor Snook and asked him if he had a relationship with Miss Hicks. Now, he didn't verbally reply, but he did shake his head, yes. The prosecutor then asked him about the keys. The manager of the YMCA told them that he was given two keys to the room and that he returned those two keys. They asked how he had both sets of keys if the other was supposed to be with Miss Hicks. Professor Snook finally spoke and said, you know how. 
The prosecutor asked to clarify, you took it from her body? And the professor simply said, yes. The admission of guilt caused the prosecutor to immediately end the interview at that time. They got a stenographer in the office right away. They knew that the professor was ready to tell them a confession, and they wanted it all recorded. In 1929, this was the best way to record interviews and confessions. They'd often use a stenotype machine that would look like a typewriter but had a lot fewer keys. They would write in shorthand to keep up with the conversation. You still see them in courtrooms today and have been in use since the early 1800s. Once everyone was in place, they recorded what the professor had to say. The following is word for word of what was said. What is your name? James Howard Snook. Your age? 49. Where do you live? 349 West 10th Street. Now, tell the stenographer in your own language what happened on the night of June 13th. I met Theora Hicks about three years ago. The friendship continued in a very intimate way ever since. She was a very good companion. I've been living with my wife during this three-year period and regarded my wife very highly and respect her very much as a wife. But she lacked some of the companionship afforded by Miss Hicks. During the three years that I knew Miss Hicks, I assisted her in many ways towards the education, but I found out it wasn't appreciated as much as I thought it should be. Our association was not a love affair in any sense of the word, but in time, Miss Hicks developed a more determined attitude in regard to dictating my movements. And the final accumulation of this occurred on the 13th of June of this year, when I met Miss Hicks at the corner of 12th and High Street in the city of Columbus, when we both got into my Ford Coupe and proceeded to drive to Love Avenue, then west out to Fisher Road and to the Columbus Rifle Range of New York Central Railroad Company. Nearing when she reprimanded me against leaving the city with my family for the weekend, as I planned to do, she threatened that if I did so, she would take the life of my wife and baby. During this quarrel, she grabbed for the purse in which she sometimes carried a 41 caliber Derringer that I had given her. In the struggle, she was hit on the head with a hammer. In the attempt to stun her, she continued desperately and an increased number of blows of increasing force was necessary to stop her. Realizing then that her skull was fractured and to relieve her suffering, I severed her juggler vein with my pocket knife. I then proceeded to pick up the things that had been scattered during the struggle and left. The instrument I used to quiet her was a hammer lying in the back seat after leaving the rifle range, I proceeded home, tossing the purse from the quarry bridge into the Scioto River on my way. 
After the struggle was over, I discovered the gun was not in the purse. The professor went on to set up his defense. He told the officers that he was afraid that Miss Hicks would follow up on her threats when she said that she would kill his family. He said, When she started to get out of the car, I grabbed a hammer from the ledge of the back seat and hit her with the flat side of it. She got out, and I followed, hitting her again and again. Damn you, I'll kill you, were her last words. I kept hitting her. I struck her once with the round end of the hammer. That was pretty hard. She was unconscious and then suffering. She had my sympathy. I didn't want to hit her anymore. I hated to do that. She was lying on her back and moaning slightly when I took out my pocket knife and cut her juggler vein. Her handbag and keys came out of the car in the struggle. The wound she had on the abdomen and the back was machine cuts. She got them when she fell against the car. He then described returning home in a haze. He sat in the dark in his kitchen, thinking of his actions when his wife came down to check on him. She didn't see the blood all over him because it was just too dark. He changed, went to bed, but really didn't sleep. The next day, he pretended as if it just didn't happen and didn't know that the body was found until it hit the news. A grand jury was assembled listening to the evidence at hand. On June 22nd, they decided to indict Professor Snook on first-degree murder charges. They believed that there was enough for first-degree murder because the confession that he slit her juggler vein. The hammer blows were in response to the danger that the professor thought himself to be in, but it was the act of killing her when she was subdued that made this a possible murder. On June 24, 1929, Professor Snook and his attorneys attended the first hearing before the trial. They would first need to know how the professor intended to plea. The professor admitted his guilt and said that he would plead guilty, but he could change his mind. This was not unexpected by the state. They knew from his confession that he was trying to make it look as if he had to kill her to protect his family. He might also explore other avenues, the temporary insanity plea. This is the I snapped and I lost my mind when this happened. I had no control over my actions. It was slightly suggested that when the professor spoke about the hammer blows, he felt as if he had to protect everyone. He did it so he could protect his family. So since they expected it, the state had already set up an interview the next day for Professor Snook with three doctors. They would each examine his mental and physical health. They spent most of the day with the professor. They took a blood sample to examine and had a complete series of tests done. 
by the end of the day, they could soundly say at the time that the professor was sane. They just had to wait for the blood test to be examined, which, at this point in time, could take weeks. In response to this, the defense hired their own medical team to examine the professor as well. They also asked for a change of venue, and they wanted a trial date pushed back. It was set for July 22nd, just a little over a month after the murder. This was denied by the court. The judge stated he didn't believe that anything could be gained by delaying the case. There were no more fact findings. There was no reason to really wait. But the defense had another trick up their sleeve. If they changed their plea to not guilty for the reason of insanity, the court would have no choice but to delay due to having to further judge the sanity of the professor at the time of the murder. The state's findings at this point weren't the official word for the court. The judge, who wanted no delays, called both sides into his chambers to discuss what they would do. The judge ordered that the professor be examined again before the trial starts, and that would cause little to no delay if they worked over the weekend. Both sides agreed, so the weekend before the trial was to have started, three more doctors came in to examine Professor Snook. By Monday morning, their findings were that, well, he was sane. So Professor Snook changed his plea to not guilty. He acted in self-defense. They also stated that he had emotional insanity. He was just overcome with his emotions, which led to Miss Hicks's death. The trial began on August 3rd, 1929. After the jury selection had ended, they had one delay when a juror got sick, but they were able to replace her quickly. The state first called the state doctor who performed the autopsy on Miss Hicks. He stated that he believed that this was premeditated murder. Something that the defense jumped on right away. They asked him to prove that statement from his findings. The doctor pointed out the professor cut her throat to end the suffering of damage that he caused her. They called the owner of the cleaners where Professor Snook got his suit cleaned and that had bloodstains on it. They testified that the professor brought it in in the morning after the murder. They called several witnesses, including one that came forward that had seen Ms. Hicks with someone in the parking lot of the rifle range on the night of the murder. They appeared to have been fighting at the time. He said he didn't stop because he had his daughters with him. He didn't think about it until the news of Miss Hicks's death was published. He waited to report on what he had seen because he just didn't want to be involved. This was important because, according to the confession, Miss Hicks didn't get out of the car for very long without being hit over the head with a hammer. This eyewitness showed that there was more to the story from what the professor was willing to admit. 
Then the state revealed that they did some really odd tests. You see, they started the theory that the professor drugged Miss Hicks and then killed her. This theory was formed when the doctor who did the autopsy found some beef in her stomach, something that she didn't have time to digest before she died. They believed it was laced with drugs. So the doctor gave the undigested beef to a dog. The dog acted weird and wobbly after eating the meat, as if it was drugged with some kind of sedative. I found this to be completely crazy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's one way to test a theory, I guess. I mean, think about it. I would be wobbly and acting sick, too, if I was giving undigested meat from the stomach of a dead person. Drugged or not. But the test was done, and it was considered evidence in the doctor's mind that the meat was, well, drugged. Then the newspaper writer, who also gained a confession from the professor also testified of what he was told. The defense challenged this because it was taken while the professor was under duress, but the judge allowed it to give a complete picture of the confession. The defense called character witnesses to the stand. They had Mrs. Snook and the professor's mother to testify what kind of person he really is. They then called Professor James Snook to the stand. He testified to his entire life story, how he met Miss Hicks, and how they fell in love with each other. They had an understanding that they would see each other for physical pleasure, not much more. He told a story of how Miss Hicks began experimenting with drugs and became addicted to them. He told of the night that she died and recounted of what happened, how she threatened the life of his family and that he believed that she had her gun on her. He taught her how to shoot, and she was good at it. He was an Olympic gold medalist for shooting, and he knew what he was talking about. He stated that he was only acting in self-defense when he killed her. The case was handed over to a jury. They had come back with the decision in record-breaking time, within 30 minutes they found their decision. They found Dr. James Snook guilty of murder in the first degree. They fixed death as his sentence. The jury obviously didn't believe the story that the professor had put together. It was hard to believe that a firearm expert like Dr. Snook would kill someone in self-defense, thinking that they had a gun when they didn't. He bled her out to kill her. In the months leading up to his execution, attorneys for the professor tried hard to save his life, but each appeal was struck down. He was scheduled to die on February 28, 1930, when the governor declined to step in and stop the execution. Dr. Snook did something extraordinary. He confessed to everything. The prison warden came in to see Dr. Snook before he was to be put to death. It was there where he heard the full confession of what had happened. He told the warden that Miss Hicks was going to expose him, 
she would tell the world about their affair and that he would be ruined. It would expose him, end his marriage, and end his teaching career. So he simply planned to kill her. This was the only way to ensure that he would not be exposed. And he honestly believed that no one would be able to tie him to the murder. He was shocked when they got to him so fast. On March 1st, 1930, Dr. Snook stepped into the death chamber. Without any assistance, he took a seat in the chair. The preacher prayed for him, and then soon after, he was put to death. James Snook was buried in his family plot, but they did not use his last name on the tombstone. They used his middle name as his last, so no one would damage the stone. It's amazing that these kinds of things have been going on for so long. I am always hearing about people in power taking advantage of others. We see it in politics, media, and in personal businesses. Over a year ago, I learned that a creator like myself did something horrible things with a young woman when they attended a show that he was working on. When that news broke, it was a real eye-opener for me. You just never know who someone is until it's too late. Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed this series. It was incredible to research. Make sure you rate the podcast and share it with a friend. We want to grow and provide more content. And the only way we can make that happen is with your help. You can follow me and my exploits by following me on social media. The links are in the description. I hope you all have a great week, and I'll see y'all next time. See ya. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.